I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Uh, Dean, I'm back in the United States, and it's not good here. <laughs> not that Canada's yeah. great either, but um, at least we were together, you know, just doing it. But here, not great. It's true. You know, uh, my wife, Emily, she's out of town for a long time, for a few weeks, and uh, it's not great here either. It's me and the cats. I'm talking to them, reading too many books, playing too many video games. And now that I'm left to my own devices, um, I, again, I have no idea what time I should go to bed. I don't know what I should do the next day. If I'm not working, I'm in big trouble. So I think you're just going to have to come back. That's what it comes down to here. <laughs> that makes sense. You know, Foucault is like, he's always talking about how everything's a prison. And it sounds like you need a, you need a little bit more prison in your life right now you need something to I regulate do. your uh, your comings and goings i need some real discipline in here <laughs> dang well get ready for some wild discipline in this episode because uh, we're talking about the most disciplinary institution there is the international monetary fund ever heard of it you ever heard of it <laughs> well okay i think this has a lot to do with christianity and maybe a kind of weird way but let me hit you with this so Christianity has this really weird way and maybe helpful way of thinking about evil. You know, <laughs> a dangerous persons. I know, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, there's like the uh, the type of evil that people do knowingly, but there's also a type of evil that seems to like subsume individual expressions of evil. So, murdering a puppy, <laughs> for example, it's evil. We all know it. We we hear some somebody murders a puppy, it's bad, no one needs to tell us. Um, and we know that there's like, you know, one corresponding individual who is culpable for this, uh, this puppy murder and, uh, we don't like it, but there are other types of evil that, uh, some in the Christian tradition have called the powers and principalities. That's a, a phrase that comes straight out of the new Testament from everyone's most forgettable book, Ephesians. Um, the powers and principalities are those types of evil that supersede any one individual and takes on like this extra human character. Uh, you know, you might call it demonic or something even. But the whole system of global finance that enforces unequal development between global north and south is definitely one of these types of powers and principalities, right? It's bigger than any one person. 
the you can't blame uh, uneven uneven. De- <laughs> You can't blame uneven development on one person, um, though we're, we're going to try pretty hard in this episode to do just that. Um, <laughs> but anyways, you get what I mean, right? It's like this big system of cogs and wheels and levers and uh, bureaucracies, and they're all kind of like doing a thing. And uh, the result is a whole lot of evil that keeps a lot of people poor and uh, a few people very rich. I think that's a good way of getting into it. Um, Powers and principalities, there are some pretty significant theologians who've talked about it. William Stringfellow, he's the big one that I guess I think about the most in the U.S. Um, It also comes up among liberation theologians. And you can go find a pastor or a theology person to tell you all about what it really means, I'm sure. But uh, I think that it's, it's no accident that it's a really suggestive metaphor for talking about the structural sins or structural issues or kind of like the spirit that drives us on, whether or not we really get it, right? Uh, that kind of, like, capitalism is that way. It's, it's something that we're stuck with. It sort of patterns the way that we think, and it takes a lot of work to undo it or to recognize it or to exercise it even from your life. Um, so it's kind of a weird way into it, but I think you're right, Matt. The IMF, it is one of those big powers and principalities. It's not flesh and blood. It's a, <laughs> it's a prince of this world. Um, it is a, a big demonic institution that's out there patterning the world against the kingdom of God, for sure. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it, it's like uh, if all of the IMF bureaucrats suddenly disappeared tomorrow, um, you know, it would take them a few days to get back on their feet, but but fundamentally nothing would change, right? That's, I guess, the, mm-hmm. the powers and principality structure. It, it continues to exist even if the uh, individuals themselves uh, go missing for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they do actually, right? Like uh, they have rotating directors who come in from different countries. They have a, a cast of... Um, I don't know, more or less substitutable elites that totally. sort of run in, run the show for a specific amount of terms, right? So, like, it, it's not actually that farcical. It's not like these are, you know, Supreme Court justices uh, <laughs> who are, like, stuck with it forever. Um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a careerist thing. It's a, a kind of institution with a mind of its own, and it's not even 100 years old. That's true. A very recent uh, invention. On this podcast, we've talked about, you know, big things like national debt and development and structural adjustment programs. But I think it's worth talking about um, one of the powers that enforces all of those uh, particular mechanisms or relationships, um, and that is the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. The IMF is a financial agency that operates out of the United Nations whose goal is to stabilize global finances on the scale of entire countries, which is like a... A nice sounding, neutral, sort of liberal value, <laughs> right? A great goal. I'd love to have stable global finances <laughs> everywhere in the world. Totally, yeah. Um, but in practice, that's not what happens at all. Um, in practice, they fix a particular economic order where wealthy countries in the global north, uh, whose wealth comes from colonial plunder, can extort countries in the global south who are already poor from colonial plunder <laughs> and keep them poor, <laughs> right? So uh, it's a nice liberal-sounding mission, but in practice, it's uh, it's capitalism, baby. That's right. Uh, and we're going to start talking about its role in capitalism in this episode. There is a lot to say about the IMF, and we're not going to say it all. It's a really weird institution with a very strange history that is politically motivated and tied in large part to the interests of the United States especially, but also uh, European colonial powers. Um, I can't remember if it was on this podcast or on the walk-in, but somewhere even recently we were talking about uh, 
Africa and France and uh, Africa being tied to France in all these unique ways. Anyway, neither here nor there. But all that to say, um, we're going to maybe just talk in, in kind of broad strokes about the IMF today how it operates, and we're going to be helped by a really neat dossier uh, from the Tricontinental that you can find in the show notes. If you don't know, Tricontinental is really great. Um, It's a coalition of scholars and researchers around the world. It comes out of this really interesting revolutionary history associated with the non-aligned movement um, based in Cuba, and it has uh, more recently been kind of resurrected, and they put out tons of really good analysis and newsletters and lots of just great materials. So every once in a while, they put out these things called dossiers, and it's like a sustained treatment of a particular theme. In fact, they did a really good one on religious fundamentalism. Maybe we'll have to talk about that next week or some other time, but uh, you should subscribe to them if you haven't. So anyway, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the IMF and its role in debt uh, issues right now, and just maybe with this big giant asterisk up front that we're glossing over a bunch, and you can go read the great big long Wikipedia article about it if you want. (laughs) Um, Actually, if you're really interested... I think I've plugged this book before, or this guy before. There's a scholar named Eric Toussaint, and uh, he co-wrote a book uh, called Debt, the IMF, and the World Bank, 60 Questions, 60 Answers. It's published by the Monthly Review, so you know it's good. Um, He's also written a bunch of other stuff. In fact, he has a book coming out, I think, in like a month or two from Haymarket that's just about debt, and that's it. He's like the debt guy, so lots of uh, accessible resources kind of on the left that you can use to maybe fill in the gaps here. 60 questions about the IMF. That's that's exactly the amount of questions I have. I'm in luck. (laughs) That's right. Well, first things first. All right, let's get some basics on the table here. What's the IMF? Um, Here's some super basic info, and then we'll talk about its origins a little bit. Um, It was founded in 1944, along with the World Bank, um, as part of what have become sort of the Bretton Woods uh, institutions, the World Bank and the IMF. And they're called that because they sort of drew up this big plan in a place called Bretton Woods. Basically, each member country of the IMF, um, the IMF and the World Bank don't necessarily have the same members, though they have mostly overlapping ones. Um, each member of the IMF appoints a, a governor to represent it at the, the IMF. It's like It's kind of like the United Nations of banking in some ways, maybe. Um, It's not exactly that, but kind of. Uh, It receives a a big loan reserve from those member states. So like the World Bank basically gets all its money from the market, like any other big bank. Um, What's unique about the IMF is as a fund, it's like contributions made by all the member countries. And so from that fund, it gives loans with all kinds of conditions to people who ask for it. Um, It's not like illegal to not be part of the IMF. Um, It's a, you know, supposedly voluntary member-based organization. And uh, the the sort of, you know, the big liberal pitch is if you're a country and you need a hand, you got a bad shake or whatever, you need money, you had a bad, I don't know, (laughs) commodity downturn or something this year, you could go to the IMF and say, look, I need this much money to stabilize my economy. And can you help me do that? They would give you this loan and, uh, you know, you could sort of all walk away with a good balance sheet at the end of it. Um, It had a a role to play in the development conversation. So if you think back to our development episodes, right, there was kind of this liberal vision at the beginning of uh, the sort of post-war period where it was like, 
we got to get these global south countries back on track, these newly decolonizing countries back on track, and so on. And in some cases, there was even a sort of vaguely liberal progressive notion, right, that the state has a role to play in that, the public services are important, but as history goes on, you know, capitalism also continues to be bad, and it kind of goes into, like, turbo drive in the 80s with neoliberalism and so on, and the IMF really becomes, like, the global star of uh, trying to reshape the entire planet according to like the most brutal capitalist logic that you can imagine. So these kind of like liberal dreams of, you know, just balancing everybody out, they really become loans given by like a mob boss, right? Like, yeah, sure. I'll give you this much money if you gut your entire public infrastructure and give us all the money that you get from your citizens via taxes, right? So um, the IMF, uh, a liberal dream gone (laughs) absolutely bonkers. Uh, And uh, also, though, maybe not such a surprise if you kind of think about where it came from. Yeah, totally. I think talking about it like it's a mob boss is a pretty good analogy. Um, Because, you know, when you gut your infrastructure, what you're doing is you're privatizing it and uh, making sure that, you know, the countries that who are the countries who are loaning you you the money in the first place, they can benefit from that privatization, too. So it's like definitely an upward transition of wealth um, from one country to another in a pretty shady way. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So at the at the beginning of this episode, we were talking a little bit about like uh, you know types of evil, and uh, when it comes to the IMF, there's not like one bad guy who's responsible. But if there were, <laughs> there's a guy named John Maynard Keynes uh, who is uh, probably known as like a, a sort of progressive liberal economist. Though I think his track record is actually not that. It's pretty shady if you look into it a bit more. Um, Keynes is not like the only person responsible for the IMF, that's for sure. But he is an economic thinker that definitely put a lot of these ideas into place. And uh, people rely on um, his sort of framework for thinking through um, global banking (laughs) and the stability of capitalism, (laughs) especially in in light of crises that were happening in the uh, earlier part of the 1900s. Um, so Keynes himself, he's like responsible for writing all these types of, uh, like different documents for treasury departments of the UK and also like all kinds of different economic treaties that we can talk about in a little bit. Um, but like I said, people think of him as sort of like a, he's like a, a welfare state kind of guy, right? He's like a, he's a guy who is, um, a vaguely progressive, um, interested in sort of like a, an overarching, like stable global order. But that's a really complicated story because he's not just that. He's also a guy who dabbles in eugenics <laughs> in, in some ways. <laughs> and uh in someone who is who's interested in like that nice like um that nice liberal global order, but really one that only favors um the UK and the US. And uh to hell with everybody else is kind of <laughs> the, the moral of the story. Yeah. Uh, he is also a very interesting economist for a lot of reasons. Um, he is like a left liberal for sure. He, uh, uh, like when people talk about the new deal, you know, Keynes had a lot of ideas that fed into that kind of policymaking. Um, or you could think of, 
I don't know, like in economics, Marx is talking about all kinds of different problems in capitalism, right? And then there's a bunch of people after Marx who talk about other stuff, um, like Schumpeter and all these other people. Uh, Keynes came along and he was like, guess what? Nobody's talking about demand. That's the big thing. And that's Keynes's big contribution that he said we ought to think about demand in economics. Um, and people remember him as like an economics kind of genius. And in some ways he, he is like he's a brilliant economist. There's no doubt about that. But Keynes is also, I feel like, the textbook example of, like, a person you could point to and say, listen, um, these economic ideas have real, actual human costs to them. And uh, when you start figuring out, like, who's bearing the burdens of those costs, it starts to create some pretty yucky questions. So let's um, talk about those those human costs right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh in uh, right before the IMF was founded, and we'll talk about Keynes's role in the IMF in just a second. Keynes was doing something else, <laughs> something extremely weird. Uh, Keynes was the special advisor on Indian financial and monetary policy to Winston Churchill and the chancellor of the, I don't know, whatever, some all kinds of weird British stuff. Uh, basically, according to this great essay by Jason Hickel that draws from some Indian economists, Keynes was uh, involved in sort of planning these wartime funding strategies uh, in the Second World War. So that was his job. Like for the UK government, he was trying to figure out how to pay for the war. Um, and Hickel writes, he sought to devise a mechanism for shifting resources away from the local population in India in order to provision the military expansion. Uh, so Britain was like, where are we going to get money to pay for this war? We might as well look to the colonies. One option was to tax rich people, but there weren't enough of them in India to provide a sufficiently large resource base. The alternative was to tax ordinary people, but Keynes knew that imposing any direct taxation on a population that was already immiserated would likely trigger riots. So he advocated for an indirect tax through deliberate inflationary policy. So this is going to be a bit of a, a long quote, but I think it's worth it to kind of get the, the stuff on the table here. So here's how that policy worked. During the 1940s, the colonial government printed extraordinary amounts of money for military expenditure. All this new demand caused prices to soar, particularly for staple goods. The price of rice increased by 300%. But because wages did not rise accordingly, ordinary people were pushed even deeper into poverty, forcing them to dramatically curtail their consumption of food and other goods. Meanwhile, any additional profits that fell into the laps of business owners as a result of the price inflation, were taxed by the colonial state. The austerity was imposed most harshly on the people of Bengal, who fell into extreme famine while food supplies were appropriated and diverted for military use. In the name of the Allied cause, the policies imposed by Keynes and Churchill killed more than 3 million people, many times more than the total number of military and civilian casualties suffered during the entire war by Britain and the U.S. combined. So, just to recap here... Keynes was in charge of trying to figure out what to do to pay the war, to pay for the war, and uh, he was looking to India in particular to sort it out. Um, he thought, well, we can't tax rich people because there's not enough. Also, we can't tax regular people because they'll riot over it. So instead, we're going to generate inflation, and that will create this indirect tax that will basically siphon off the money because people will just be like, well, I'm priced out of the market. 
they won't feel like they're being taxed. But effectively, that's what's happening, right? They're they're getting priced out, and then all that extra money is is going up to the government, uh, to its coffers through this sort of capitalist means. So basically, literally, Keynes engineers uh, a famine in Bengal in order to pay for the war. And guess what? Uh, Britain has never acknowledged its role in that, even though it is like expressly stated that that is what Keynes. Uh, like he knows the consequences and nevertheless is going to go forward with it. So anyway, um, nobody ever talks about <laughs> what Keynes is doing in India before uh, the sec- before he kind of becomes the star of like liberal progressive economics. But I think it's important not to uh, let that story, you know, just float by. Totally. Um, it's always an interesting thing to know that story in light of, you know, mainstream Democrats in the United States who will tell you that they are Keynesians like, I don't know, Barack Obama or whoever. Um, but that is like the inheritance of Keynesianism and <laughs> something that people should really deal with if, they, if they're going to be like a liberal economist. It's not great. Okay, so that's like half of the Keynes story. Um, that's like the that's like the dirty the dirty laundry that he doesn't want you to know about for sure. But there's more to the story that we can probably talk about. In the Tricontinental dossier, uh, it, they laid out like this. In 1919, John Maynard Keynes of the United Kingdom's Treasury Department published a book that became a sensation. In the book entitled The Economic Consequences of Peace, Keynes observed that the Great War had so shaken the system as to endanger the life of Europe itself. The Treaty of Versailles, which ended the war, did not grasp the underlying problems that had led to the war and only cemented the victory of some countries against others. The treaty left structural problems intact, such as the disordered finances. In Keynes' words, of many countries, not only Germany, which faced an enormous and unpayable reparations bill. The Wall Street crash of 1929, the sterling crisis of 1931, and the banking panics of 31 and 33 revealed the underlying vulnerabilities of capitalism, with the disordered finances being the spur towards the potential general collapse of the system. In 1936, Keynes published The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, a manual to save capitalism by a theoretical plea for governments to use state resources to recycle profits and balance an unbalanceable system. Keynes, who dabbled in eugenics theory, did not extend his views on state intervention to protect the system in the British colonies and prevent the decline of their population's living standards. Uh, The piece continues and says this. When the United States invited its allies to Bretton Woods in July 1944 to discuss how to manage the structural crises that contributed to the Second World War, Keynes, who was one of the main figures of this meeting, said that it would be the most monstrous monkey house assembled for many years, suggesting that 21 countries that have been invited presenting a list of primarily colonized countries from Guatemala and Liberia to Iraq and the Philippines clearly have nothing to contribute and will merely encumber the ground. Instead, Keynes preferred that the two founder states of Bretton Woods Conference, the United Kingdom and the United States, settle the charter and the main details of the new body without being subjected to the delays and confused councils of an international conference, as he explained a few years earlier. In fact, Keynes, on behalf of the United Kingdom, and Harry Dexter White, on behalf of the United States, arrived at the meeting with two plans already drafted, which they put on the table and upon which the final articles of agreement for the International Monetary Fund, as well as the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, or the World Bank, were built. The other participants were largely onlookers. So this is a, a long description of like what was happening, but I think the context is important because you get, I mean, you get a, definitely a taste of like the stuff that we said about Bengal a minute ago. Um, Keynes definitely does not care about people who are not the United Kingdom or the United States. Um, but you can kind of see like what this, <laughs> you can see the imperial characteristic of it, I think is maybe the point, right? That 
this whole thing is uh, is kind of for show <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, when Keynes and other sort of like representatives from the United States have uh, already shown up with a plane in hand and everyone else can kind of just like deal with it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that goes on to be the kind of approach to development and global um, politics in the 20th century that our favorite people like liberation theologians and so on will react against. The idea that even in a so-called progressive form, the kind of paternalism that you see demonstrated by someone like Keynes here is baked into the system, right? That the UK, the US, they pretty much know better than everybody else. Um, everybody else is welcome to like watch it unfold, but they're not really like meaningful participants. And that is still how these global financial institutions work today. When somebody uh, goes to the IMF, it's not like they're coming as equal partners or on equal footing. You know, they're coming with like their hat in hand or whatever. Um, or on the flip side, the IMF is being like, we recommend you do this or that even in an unprompted way, which is often very weird. Like the IMF will put out all kinds of reports or um, global outlooks and stuff, analyzing other countries' economics, and they'll be like, if I were the king of Bolivia, here's what I would do to make it work. Right. And uh, instead, you have people like, you know, Eva Morales or Luis Arce being like, well, too bad, you're not the king of Bolivia, and we're not going to do that. <laughs> so, you know, but the point is, like, still, the IMF and World Bank operate as though they basically are in a position to sort everybody else's stuff out for them because they can't do it on their own. They can never be trusted to get their house in order. And one other thing to add to that, too, is we'll talk about this in a minute. Uh, you know, there's a whole history behind why some countries are poor and other countries are not. And that is the kind of thing that doesn't factor into the founding of these Bretton Woods institutions. Uh, they're founded through kind of like you know, in in an imaginary world, like in the theoretical world of of Keynes's economics, they're not founded in the kind of like historical realities of dispossession or colonialism. And again, that sort of carries on all these big problematic uh, uh, assumptions later on. Yeah, exactly. Well, j just to stress the point a bit more, um, let me let me read this uh, explanation of the IMF from Tricontinental. I think uh, it, it's helpful for parsing out kind of like the the tension that you're talking about, but also like the ways that um, the liberal veneer on the outside of it is kind of <laughs> extremely false, <laughs> if it wasn't clear already. Um, so tri the Tricontinental Dossier says, the purpose of the IMF as laid out in the Articles of Agreement was straightforward. None of it built to extend the power of the British imperial system. So it's not, it's not you know, explicitly an imperialist thing, right? It's like something different. The main thrust of the articles was to assist the expansion and balanced growth of international trade and to contribute thereby to the promotion and maintenance of high levels of employment and real income and to the development of the productive resources of all members as primary objectives of economic policy. It sounds great. It sounds really wonderful. I think that's exactly right. You know, you want a world <laughs> where there's balanced growth of international trade and you want places where there's uh, high level employments and real income. That's all the kind of thing that you want. Um, but that's not what happens at all. <laughs> so, you know, it's like the, the question then remains like, well, you know, who is it that's uh, that's going to like kind of fall under the um, – the guidance of the IMF um, in, in getting to these places where there could be high employment and, and so on. And how exactly are they going to get 
countries to do that. So like Dean said, there's a, there's a way that uh, countries uh, can get a special draw, or it's called special drawing rights from the IMF, where they can take money from the, the big pot that all these countries kind of uh, put in there, right? But there are lots of stipulations around what you have to do if you do take that money. Um, and uh, the, the tricontinental dossier lays it out in these five easy points that I think are actually really important. Um, so uh, say you're a country that does do this. Here are some, here are some ways um, that, <laughs> that after you take this money, your country kind of falls into this spiral of um, poverty and debt. So number one, countries go into short-term balance of payments debt because of their lack of capital. A country's poor. They don't have money to settle the debts. Um, that makes sense, right? Um, but much of that money doesn't exist because of what you were just talking about, Dean, the underdevelopment of these countries and also like the, the plunder during the colonial period. Um, so they are reliant upon borrowing um, you know, for capital improvements to their country, uh, all kinds of things that you need money for. So that's a reason why a country might do it, but it's also an explanation of why a country might be poor in the first place, right? Not just because they're poor, but because um, the the global order is already, you know, it's taken their it's taken their goods, it's taken their it's done all kinds of extraction to make sure that they're already poor and pass that mm -hmm. money upward. Okay, so number two, the IMF arrives and informs the finance ministries that the government spending for education, healthcare, and other social development projects must be cut in order to prioritize payments to wealthy bondholders and to governments, mostly in the old colonial states, who have lent them money. So, um, <laughs> I mean, like, right, this is not an imperialist system. This is not, um, this is not an extension of colonialism. Uh, but for some reason, these, <laughs> the countries borrowing these, <laughs> this money will end up having to pay the exact governments and states that were responsible for their mm -hmm. colonial plunder in the past. Um, definitely not because of colonialism, though, just because uh, <laughs> this is just the way it worked out. Isn't that weird? Um, number three is to pay the debts servicing on these loans. The poorer nations cut their government spending, thereby impoverishing their people further and export more of their cheapened raw materials. When countries start to export more and more primary commodities, this produces a price war that leads to a steep decline in the revenues gained from the volume of exports. So this is like, I, I think this is, this is the spiral that I was just mentioning. You know, you're, you're in this bad position already. Um, you're having to cut all kinds of um, really important things that people care about, like healthcare, and then like dealing j just to deal with like the debt. You have to start selling uh, not finished products, but just like the raw materials, and uh, it just kind of is a is a downward slope. Okay, number four, with weakened revenues from imports, the poorer nations must continue to cut their social spending, ramp up their sales of raw materials and public assets and borrow more money from external private and governmental sources just to pay off the interest of their ballooning debt. So they have to transform their, you know, their entire economy to not export a particular type of good, but to start exporting all kinds of different things, lots of raw materials, and also to sell off the public assets. Um, you know, if you have a state-owned rail system or uh, oil pipeline or, you know, whatever, <laughs> you have to sell those off to somebody else. And, like, I wonder who's going to buy them for cheap. You know, it's probably... <laughs> these global north countries. And then five, uh, this is the last one, the imperative of exchange rate stability prevents governments in the poorer nations from exercising any effective monetary policy, including implementing capital controls while their fiscal policy is already eviscerated by balanced budget demands from the IMF, social spending cuts, and pressure from wealthy bondholders to reform their tax policy. I think this is like, you know, this is like sort of the bottom of the barrel, but um, it's like as bad as it gets because like fundamentally you're... 
the sovereignty of your state is extremely in question, right? If you can't even like, um, you can't set tax policies, you can't, you can't set all kinds of monetary policies. It's like the IMF has definitely sort of taken the reins of, of, uh, your country because you've gotten, um, you've gotten money from them. They can kind of tell you what you have to do to, uh, you know, be acceptable in their eyes to pay the money back. And what it ends up being is just like kind of handing over a lot of, uh, a lot of the power and a lot of the sovereignty that your country has to people who, um, <laughs> are not so secretly the global north. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's worth maybe noting here too, we kind of skipped one step, which is uh, this cycle of um, abuse, <laughs> financial abuse, uh, is not actually the vision that Keynes set up, but it is what the IMF came to do. Um, so like Keynes would have said, this is very bad. And in fact, when Keynes wrote the articles agreement of agreement that Matt mentioned earlier, that was not part of it. Um, in fact, the, uh, the story of kind of decolonizing states in Africa, especially is really bizarre because like they joined the IMF voluntarily under those articles of agreement. So they were like involved that way. Um, and you know, Keynes for all his faults would still have recognized something like national sovereignty. And he was a welfare guy. Like he would never have dreamed of being like, you should just privatize all your state stuff and then start it out. Like he would have said that is a recipe for disaster. And he would have been right. It, it was, um, the, this sort of part of the IMF really happened after a huge, uh, debt crisis in the early eighties, um, which is like very complicated and there's a lot to say about it, but basically um, it's wild because all these uh, countries had joined the IMF under certain pretenses and then the IMF completely changed the rules. Mm. So the rules now were like, Hey, if you want a loan from the IMF, uh, you're going to have to get it like this and you're going to have to do all this stuff with your economy, which is basically to liberalize it or privatize it. And it became kind of famous uh, in the global South, especially to basically make the IMF synonymous with, uh, you know, ruining your country. Like, it's like, uh, it's weird because in the global north, you probably never think about the IMF, right? Why would you ever think about it? But in the global south, average people know about it because it literally structures their their lives, their what services they can and can't have. And I think that is really important too. Um, the IMF more recently has been like trying to say that it's, turned a corner or like doesn't do this anymore um in fact uh i think they even say it in this dossier like when around when trump was president like 2015 or 16 it was um the imf basically were they were like we're sorry for all the structural adjustment <laughs> we shouldn't have done it um and uh you know they over covid were trying to use a lot of progressive language as well around like increasing special drawing rights and uh you know giving people what they need um and they would use language about like empowering vulnerable people in communities but one thing this dossier points out that i think is really important is that like okay so the imf is founded with these particular ideas about development they don't work uh then it goes on to get even worse they're like okay we're gonna restructure your whole economy to be more open to capital that doesn't work and now they're saying, okay, trust us. We're progressive again, we promise. We're not going to do the structural adjustment stuff. But in effect, this whole trap system is still in place. They're still making the same demands, but they do it through subtler language and rhetoric. 
And I think that is a, a really important piece. Like, you might be, I don't know, listening to this episode and being like, this is a lot of technical economic stuff, or it's not interesting, or it's very dry, and I would feel the same way. <laughs> it is dry and very boring to read about international banking, at least I find it very boring. But I think what's really helpful about getting a handle on it is like, there, you know, you, you can kind of draw an analogy toward like how liberal stock in the US or Canada, right? Like, uh, Justin Trudeau, he'll be like nation to nation dialogue. I'm here for it. And then meanwhile, we'll be, you know, like prosecuting like residential school survivors or something or like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, not respecting land defenders, right? It's like the, the liberal kind of strategy is to promise something progressive, but in fact, like brutalize underneath. And the dossier is great because it's focused specifically on Africa and specifically on trying to sort of show that like, it's unique because when the African nations joined the IMF on one pretext, that changed. Now it's changing again, but you shouldn't trust it. They're they're uh, they're coming for you. They're going to get you back in this trap. <laughs> yep uh, the uh, the new boss is the same as the old boss for sure. Exactly, exactly. So we said you know th- this all has to do with uh, colonialism as well, and I think that's an important piece here. Um, one cool thing that the uh, dossier draws out because of uh, its history in the tricontinental is some global south responses to debt. They have some really good quotes from Thomas Sankara, in particular, a revolutionary in Africa that I'll read in in just a minute. Um, but one thing that I think is really fascinating about the colonialism piece is the paternalism that you get, even in Keynes, is really that sort of denial of uh, the realities of colonialism, right? That like, People in the global south, they have bad economies because they had bad governments. They have uneducated people in government. They don't know what they want. They elect bad leaders. Like, that's the assumption that's being made, right? Like, they could never be trusted to run their own finances because, look, like, they're all poor. And that kind of paternalism ignores the fact that they're poor not because they are unintelligent or don't know what they want. They're poor because they have had literally hundreds of years of being like a monoculture economy, uh, you know, on the threat of like the sword or the gun from the colonial power. And that is going to make it pretty hard to <laughs> to develop, right, on your own terms. Um, so uh, Sankara has a really cool way, I think, of showing how the uh, the debt problem Uh, continues that colonial uh, relationship in a different form. So two quotes from Sinkara. He says, Debt's origins come from colonialism's origins. Those who lend us money are those who colonized us. Debt is neocolonialism, with the fiscal and monetary policies of many of the African states taken over by the technical assassins of the uh, international financial institutions. Debt is a cleverly managed reconquest of Africa aimed at subjugating its growth and development through foreign rules. And then he goes on to say, debt cannot be repaid, first because if we don't repay, lenders will not die. That's for sure. But if we repay, we are going to die. That is also for sure. Those who led us to indebtedness gamble as if in a casino. As long as they had gains, there was no debate. But now that they suffer losses, they demand repayment, and we talk about crisis. No, Mr. President, they played and they lost. That's the rule of the game, and life goes on. We can't repay because we don't have any means to do so. We can't pay because we are not responsible for this debt. Uh, So two important pieces here, right? The debt continues these colonial relationships. All the money's going back to colonial governments, etc. But also Sankara is challenging the logic of debt. Those countries made a, a, a bet or the IMF made a bet 
that if they lent money to these poor countries, they would get money back, right? They would make their, they would get their, their loans repaid with interest and so on. And Sankara is saying, well, that's a bad bet. And uh, the risk of debt goes two ways. And I mean, this is something we talked about in the Jubilee episode and the debt episode that um, the way we think about debt always favors the creditor and it never favors the debtor, which is to say the person essentially in power. So I think it's it's just good the way that the dossier tries to remind us of that history, too, that Sankara is like saying all this in the 1980s. And uh, it's still that way in 2023. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that Sankara is so interesting because. Well, I mean, Burkina Faso is exactly, um, you know, a country that has been the uh, the victim of that type of colonial plunder. And and also, like, I don't know, it's not like Town Sankara himself, like, <laughs> borrowed the money, right? It was somebody before him. Um, anyways, a great a great example, um, a, g- a good word, too, about debt to kind of remind people um, that, uh, I mean, just kind of like the weirdness of the whole arrangement and, uh, and how... Um, how shaky it actually is, I think, in practice. I think it's good. Um, Thomas Sankara, this is a completely unrelated, uh, but a fun fact about him that I learned very recently is that he biked to work every day when he worked for the government. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. Thomas Sankara was a part of the war in cars, and I really do love that. <laughs> Pretty great. That's great. I know. I love it. Uh... There's also a really good uh, brief line in here um, in the dossier where they mentioned that Fidel Castro uh, had suggested that all the countries should just get together and do a big debt strike. And I think that's great. Uh, they did not take him up on it, but what a great idea from Fidel. <laughs> they've, they've got these guys have their idea. They know exactly what's up. Um, OK, so the the end of this tricontinental dossier, it kind of brings in some other um, some other examples from Africa that we probably don't have time to talk about right at this very moment. But they're good examples. Uh, so I'll, I'll link it all in the show notes. You can read it yourself. But the the kind of concluding point is that the IMF is not good. <laughs> um, and in fact, this is this is how they wrap it up. They say that the the IMF cannot be the answer to the poorer nation's economic challenges. Alongside its sister institutions, the IMF has provided assistance to poor countries ever since its establishment in 1944. And yet many of these countries have remained poor in spite of this. The reason is that IMF assistance has never confronted the structural factors that have continued to consign many countries to the ranks of the poor. Um, A great point for sure. Uh, The IMF is a thing that keeps people poor, not like um, it does not help countries confront that (laughs) in any in any meaningful way. So in, in light of that, though, the Tricontinental dossier says that a new kind of institutional apparatus that fosters cooperation rather than competition is required for, uh, in this case, Africa's economic liberation. But just broadly, all of these developing countries, um, it, would, it would benefit all of these countries for sure. Um, this would mean, for example, establishing currency arrangements that bypass the U.S. dollar, which is a strong lever of IMF condition conditionality and a weapon of U.S. foreign policy. These kinds of long overdue proposals are already underway in parts of the world, such as Latin America, where Brazil's president uh, Lula, you know him, you love him, and Argentina's president uh, Alberto Fernandez have proposed the establishment of regional currencies. Uh, You might have heard that in the news even in the past few weeks, and the United States was really bent out of shape that Lula would even suggest it, but uh, (laughs) he's right. (laughs) So all that to say, like, um, Tricontinental is right. The IMF is bad. Probably should abolish it and uh, kind of come up with some other kind of actual apparatus that can do justice to the situation um, instead of just like trapping countries in a spiral uh, of debt. I think that is a, a great direction to kind of point people. 
<laughs> it is. Um, it is so tough, though, because, like, it's tough for a lot of reasons. Like, um, the the currency situation, for example, like, it would be great if Brazil and Argentina could figure out how to create a new currency. But, like, I'll be personally pretty surprised if they can pull it off. Um, pleasantly surprised, for sure. But it's tough to uh, join your, your currency systems that way, especially, like, in the shadow of uh, the U.S. dollar, because it does have a, a hegemony. Um, or, like, in other places, too, even, like, in Africa... There's a whole um, African franc system that was set up by the French and a ton of African countries use the the franc as a result. Um, and like they have a unified currency, but it is tied directly to French interests. And mm-hmm. there's all these different mechanisms that like prevent them from not doing that or from like using a different currency and stuff. So all that to say, like one thing that's so weird about global finance is uh, one way or another, you know, you're kind of like roped into whatever the U S wants. And that is why the U S reacts so violently when like somebody like Lula will be like, well, what if we just had different money or, you know, why the U S gets nervous when China's economy is getting bigger and bigger because like, what if people, you know, start using the yen to make bigger payments as some things are, are happening in the global South. There are bigger, uh, payments being made through Chinese currencies rather than the U.S. dollar. That makes the U.S. very nervous. Um, all that to say, like, <laughs> yes, the IMF is never the answer, um, but it's tough because there's also, like, no other answer right now either. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, <laughs> the Global South is basically left to be, like, unless you have the courage and ability, which those two things don't always come together, <laughs> the courage and ability to, like, delink from that system in a meaningful way, you're kind of like stuck with it. Um, And also, if you are in a country with, you know, elections and competing politics and so on, uh, what you do can be undone pretty quick. Uh, The example that comes to mind recently is like um, in Bolivia, uh, Eva Morales famously told the IMF to <laughs> to fuck off, and uh, the coup government re they like you know reestablished all these relationships with international um, capitalism and took on a bunch of debt that Arce then had to inherit in Bolivia and basically has had to have this really bizarre relationship with the IMF even though the the coup government was only in power for a year right or like in a country like Honduras or. Um, you know, well, a bunch of other countries, but in Honduras, where there was a coup in 2009 against a left-wing president, and then there was, like, over a decade of basically, like, right-wing narco-fascism in that country, and now there's a left-wing president who is stuck with literally millions and millions of dollars in debt that now she either has to pay off or refuse to pay, which creates more problems for borrowing from other people down the line. So, like, all that to say, it's like, man... Uh, the only way I feel like you're going to get out of this whole system is, uh, if, you know, I don't know, there's a kind of mass delinking, which requires all kinds of social movements and everything else. And is probably not like on the horizon tomorrow, but, uh, who knows if Brazil and Argentina can figure out, uh, how to have a new currency, it'd be a good start. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> it's not on the horizon tomorrow yet, but maybe the day after I'll get up really early and we'll just get it all sorted out. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that that's like a helpful direction, though. And, you know, it's not it's not coming immediately. But uh, the idea that there has to be some kind of like different um, institutional apparatus that deals with international trade is pretty important. Mm -hmm. Um, Leonardo Boff even 
our our favorite uh, blog writing liberation theologian even has some things to say about the IMF. In a blog post from 2011, he was talking about global capitalism, and uh, he he has this line that I think is good, and I'll talk about maybe why more in a minute. But he says the thieves are comfortably housed on Wall Street in the International Monetary Fund and in the Central European Bank. In other words, they're the high priests of exploitive global capital. I like the um, the metaphor of the IMF, uh, you know, in the World Bank and the Central European Bank and all these other international financial institutions being high priests um, <laughs> in, in the bad way. Um, on this podcast, we talk about priests that are good, but you can think about the uh, the extremely disciplinary priest, right? The one that's going to tell you to uh, do all kinds of <laughs> awful penance that you don't want to do for sure. Um, but I don't know. I think it's a great way to think about the IMF. It's like the, uh, the extremely disciplinary priest, the one that's going to tell you to say a lot of Hail Marys, uh, to go to Mass really early in the morning, um, and do the things you don't want to do. Yeah, you know, uh, all this uh, finance talk is annoying, but it is also pretty interesting. Like, liberation theologians, if you if you search just, like, structural adjustment and liberation theology on Google, you'll get a ton of hits. Um, they were constantly talking about the IMF, um, especially the more economically-minded ones, like Francine Clemerit or um, Hugo Asman or Pablo Richard or Fry Beto, like... Those guys who are interested in kind of the market itself. Um, and then later on, too, like the kind of next generation, like Marcella Althus Reed was still talking about the IMF, you know, like it's all over in that literature. But I feel like theologians today have kind of like <laughs> given up on <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on in, in global finance in the global north, which I think is too bad. But uh, it's it's important, right? Like it's important because people on the left are still figuring it out. The Tricontinental has this whole dossier on Africa um, there are African theologians talking about it, right? Uh, even the uh, the African Bishops Conference in the Catholic Church, like they put out statements about uh, uncontrollable debt in Africa. Pope Francis is talking about it, right? Like in the global South, it's still part of kind of Christian discourse. Um, but the rest of us have to maybe like relearn how to talk about all that one way or another. As boring as it is to learn about <laughs> all this uh, finance stuff. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you subscribe at like $2 or more, you get access to a behind the paywall podcast called The Lock-In, which comes out um, once a month. So that's cool. Um, you also get access to our very exclusive uh, Discord channel where we talk about all kinds of great things like memes and pets and... I don't know, whatever else we're posting about these days. It's it's changing <laughs> constantly, and it's great. Um, if you don't want to support us, then fine. Don't. See if I care. Um, I don't. I definitely don't care, for sure. He doesn't, and I don't either. <laughs> um, our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. 
There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord